This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of Real Estate is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. I'm Rafi Holzer, CEO of Avir. Uh, and what I love about real estate is that we get to work with buildings. And what I love about buildings, um, it's kind of like what kids love about dinosaurs. They're huge. I mean, they're the biggest things that we build in the case of buildings, not dinosaurs. And I love to be part of something that is that massive and that big a part of uh, the human experience. You can't have a real estate industry without buildings. And you can't have buildings without construction. But not every construction project is run at 100% efficiency in labor and resources. What if sensors allowed materials and resources, from copper pipes to employees, to be tracked and accounted for at all times on the job? Coming up, a company that makes this possible with automated construction verification, preventing rework by catching mistakes as they happen, and ensuring perfect fit and accountability. From New York City, you're listening to Real Estate Is Your Business, powered by Preview, a smart online real estate brokerage providing expert advice without the high fees. With Thomas Kutzman and Scott Pollock. Rafi, thanks for joining us today. Uh, excited to have you here. Yeah, my pleasure. And Avir uses LiDAR technology to help enhance the construction management BIM experience. Yeah. How do you go about that? Well, first of all, there's a lot of, a lot of big acronyms there. Right. What is that is my question. So LiDAR and BIM, I think those are the two acronyms that, uh, that we covered. So. Uh, so LiDAR, you can think of it as like light radar, uh, some, and it stands for something light something 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 i don't remember um but essentially it what it is is uh, like a laser rangefinder on steroids right so you a laser rangefinder works because you shoot a, a little beam of light and then it bounces back and based on the amount of time that it took the light to travel you know a distance um so if you shoot out like hundreds of thousands of those points at in a second you get a picture of what's around you and this is a term that we hear a lot used in self-driving cars, right? LiDAR Correct. is what's on top of LiDAR is car. exactly. And we're actually using that same type of LiDAR, uh, those mobile LiDAR units, as opposed to some of those uh, older uh, terrestrial, meaning ground-based uh, LiDAR units that um, companies like Leica um, or Faro have been making for years for the construction and surveying industries. Uh, but the other acronym that we were talking about before is uh, BIM, which is, for those who don't know, is Building Information Model. Um, and that is essentially a 3D model or 3D blueprint of a building, really. Um, at least that's what it is today. And, and what we're trying to do at Avir is make it more than that. Um, we're trying to, when BIM was first um, conceived in the late 1980s, um, the idea was that BIM was going to be a digital twin of a building. And if you so much as changed the, you know, the paint color in your office, that would change in the model as well. That doesn't happen today. What happens is your architect comes out with your BIM. Um, they use it just like a blueprint is used, just it's fancier in 3D. You can do some interesting things that you can't do with 2D blueprints. Um, but then it becomes irrelevant because, you know, as soon as construction starts happening, um, things move away from the plans. Um, deviations start to occur, mistakes happen, and your BIM is out of date. And if it's not, keep, if it's not getting updated, you lose that whole digital twin aspect. 
And so this is where shims are often used in place of, uh, you know, all the, the issues that come with building, especially in, in an existing building where something's not perfectly plumb and level. Or exactly. Or it doesn't fit exactly as it was cut. Um, and it gets even more extreme than that. I mean, when I first discovered BIM, I was actually at, um, I was at Carnegie Mellon University doing an internship there. Um, and I was primarily researching how we commercial, could commercialize various reality capture technologies uh, that the lab I was at was, was investigating. And as I was talking to uh, construction managers and general contractors, I found out for the first time that construction doesn't always go according to plan. So you might have a column that's supposed to be here, but it's actually two feet away from here. And then the facility manager later has to deal with that, or the carpenter has to deal with that, or a water main is supposed to be placed, you know, on this side. I mean, this was a story I actually heard. It was supposed to be placed on like the east side of the building. And then the facility manager had to turn off the water main. So he starts like looking in closets on that side of the building where it's it ended up on the other side of the building. It took him an hour to find that happens all the time. How, how does that happen though? And then more broadly, you know, when things are not as they appear in a blueprint or whatever other plans, how does the model get so far off when it's constructed? Um, so construction sites are complicated things. Um, and very often you just need to make adjustments on the fly. Um, that is, I guess the, uh, you know, me giving contractors and subcontractors the benefit of the doubt uh, for why things change. Um, sometimes things change because people just make mistakes. Um, and, um, you know, a column is not supposed to be an inch and a half off or out of plumb, um, but it just is. And uh, that just happens because human error happens. Yeah, I guess if... Uh... If surgeons have to mark which leg to amputate, it's and fair. That, right, if that, <laughs> exactly. The contractor can move a pole a few feet by accident. Exactly. And w when you think about real estate and where the real value comes in for the construction company or, or the building owner, uh, what are the true benefits of this? So we see two primary two primary benefits. Um, the first benefit being uh, preventing rework. Um, right, so rework is work that has to be redone uh, because it was done wrong the first time. And very often that'll come about because you make a small mistake today. It's not discovered until three months later. And because buildings are built linearly, especially high-rise buildings, uh, they're built sequentially and in an order. You have to go back and undo all of that work that's already been done to fix that mistake. Um, so that ends up becoming, the small mistake ends up becoming a huge cost. If we can find that mistake very quickly, we can prevent a lot of that cost. Um, and I'll give you an example of, of something like that. One project that we did was a hotel project where um, there was a hole that was supposed to be in a wall for some HVAC ductwork to go through. And that hole was placed two feet too low. And New York City code apparently requires that ductwork has seven and a half feet of clearance underneath it. So when the HVAC guys came in after the building had topped out at 30 stories and this hole was supposed to be on the fifth floor, they were like, okay, we can't install the ductwork now because we only have six feet of clearance. We're supposed to have eight, according to the plans. That was a two-week delay, $100,000 in direct cost to the owner. If we had caught it then, it would have been like $100 in rework. So that's, I mean, that's the scale of things you're talking about. And and when it comes to it, how often are you, are you doing scans to, to capture that? Is it a daily, weekly... Each, um, each floor as you go? We'd like to capture as often as we can. Right now, it's on a weekly or biweekly basis, depending on the pace of construction. 
but I also want to answer the the rest of your question. Um, you asked like, what are the, the benefits? And I think the second primary benefit is at the end of construction, you have a really accurate model of of what's actually built. You know, right now, if you're a developer, you typically can't rely on the as-built documents your GC gives you at the end of construction because what really happens at the end of construction when as-built are being generated is all the subs get in the you know get in the field office together on the last day during project closeout, and they're like. I think we moved this here. Do you remember? And they mark stuff up on paper with pencil and they fudge it. And people have just kind of come to accept that that's the way things are done. Nobody's actually pressing for better. But if you ask a facility manager how, how it is dealing with that stuff, um, it isn't fun. And that's how a water main winds up on the wrong side of the building because somebody forgot to write it on the paper at the end of the project. Exactly. And so... What you guys do then is you come in with the LiDAR device from a self-driving car and put it in a building at varying stages and make sure that things are going according to plan. Essentially, yeah. Yeah. And, and what what data do you collect and how do you put that into a form that actually prevents somebody from saying we're installing an HVAC system at the wrong height? Yeah, so that's kind of the, I guess, the secret sauce, if you will. But essentially what we're doing is we're taking those LiDAR devices, like you said, that would go on top of a self-driving car. Uh, there are a couple of companies that have taken those devices um, and attached um, some hardware and software around them that enable them to know where they are in space. I'll throw out another acronym now. Um, SLAM, S-L-A-M, uh, stands for Simultaneous Localization and Mapping. And that's a family of algorithms um, that enable things like self-driving cars to know where they are in space. Like basically knowing from GPS systems and the like? or Yeah, well, so they, it's with it, using without GPS systems. Essentially using like any kind of sensor, uh, whether it's a camera or, uh, you know, ultrasound sensor or you know, sonar or radar or anything like that to get feedback about the environment in front, behind you, around you, um, and create a map of your surroundings. So it knows that it's five feet from the wall. And exactly. Can base everything else on that. Exactly. So we get that information. What these SLAM-based scanners are, are, you know, enable us to do is to walk around and scan as opposed to kind of putting the scanner in a stationary place and um, scanning one room and then moving to the next room and stitching all that stuff together afterward, which is a slow and laborious process. These new scanners that have come to market um, enable us to just walk and scan. And so we're getting just geometric data um, about the surroundings of the building. And then we take that into our algorithm and we compare it to the, to the BIM um, and we can compare the two. And how did you get into this? How did, how did it all start? So it goes back to that experience at uh, Carnegie Mellon. Um, I was, I've always had two passions. One was uh, urban planning um, and the other was uh, bioengineering and uh, neural engineering in particular. Um, so I was all set to do a PhD in bioengineering um, but before I did that, I wanted to get a little, just, I wanted to whet my appetite with, um, the, some urban planning experience. I did this, uh, internship at Carnegie Mellon at this robotics slash civil engineering, uh, laboratory. Um, but I guess my technical skills weren't up to snuff. So the head of the lab had me do essentially what was mostly user research and talking to potential customers of the technology they were, they were developing as opposed to building it. Um, so I got to talking to engineer, project engineers and contractors, um, and they told me about the problems they had in construction and how things didn't always go according to plan. And I learned about the uh, uh, project handover process at the end of construction. Um, so that's what kind of got me thinking about this. And then when I ended up in my PhD, uh, which I never finished, by the way, 
Um, Overrated. Yeah, exactly. Education. Um, <laughs> there was a, a business plan competition uh, at the University of Pennsylvania where I was uh, to figure out how to commercialize drones. And What time frame was this, by the way? This was like five years ago, which is crazy to think about, that five years ago they didn't know what to do with drones, commercially speaking. I mean, that, they kind of came on the market pretty quick as a, as a tool for everything. Yeah, very quickly. Um, but five years ago, I mean, this lab at the University of Pennsylvania is one of the leaders, still is one of the leaders in drone technology, but they, had, they were like, really cool toy. What do we do with them, commercially speaking? And I just kind of you know, connected the dots from my, the two experiences that I had and uh, figured they'd be a great tool um, in construction and for monitoring construction sites. Turns out I was right um, because that's the primary use case for drones commercially today, um, that and monitoring oil rigs, I think. Um, I came in second place in that business plan competition and I was all ready to start uh, the company. And then I met my wife and um, as some entrepreneurs can probably relate, um, if you don't have a spouse who's on board, um, it's very difficult to kind of move forward with your company. So she wasn't interested at the time in marrying an entrepreneur. So we kind of put that on the back burner. Um, but about, it's about a year ago now, things started started to kind of come together. Um, first of all, some things had come into the market. I'd been following the market for a while and what technology was available, including those slam-based LiDAR sensors. Um, and my wife just kind of felt like, okay, this is something you really want to do. You can go forward, and so it was just kind of serendipitous that things came together at once. And so, what did you do in that intervening time? What was uh, you know where so, you were hanging your hat for years? Now? Yeah, I decided that um, having done some research uh, as part of my PhD, I was more interested in bringing cutting edge tech to market than I was interested in actually doing the basic science research and sitting in a lab all day. Um, so I decided I wanted to learn more about how products get developed and commercialized and brought to market and marketed and all of that. Um, so I became a product manager and I was a product manager at a bunch of different software consultancies for about three and a half years um, before starting this company. And you know, when you think of product management, how, how was that experience, you know, getting up to speed on that? What, what are, what would be the takeaways you would you know give other people as far as how to think about product management? Um, I think the the number one thing about uh, product management is, thinking about um, two things. One is really thinking about your uh, figuring out who your user is and building the right product uh, for them, right? So it's not necessarily just about, it's a lot of design thinking, right? So it's not just about um, building the thing that you've conceived of in your head, but actually talking to people who you think are going to be using that thing and finding out what they actually need and not necessarily what they say they want because those can be two different things, but what is actually going to solve a problem that they have. Um, and then the other thing is how to do that, right? How to, you know, you can't release typically a product all at once. You have to figure out what your minimum viable product is. And um, that's that can be challenging also. It still is I have to check myself every so often um, and realize, you know, where do we put our focus? We have limited resources as a startup and how do you... Um, bring the right thing to market in the right order at the right time. So now you were working as a product manager for a few years. You mentioned before that along the way you'd been kind of hearing more about this technology. You had this passion for uh, city planning. Yeah. How did that all come together for you to say, I'm starting a company that's going to use this new technology 
And I know that there's a demand for it because I understand product and people and how they think and what they really need. Yeah. So I've been itching to start a company, any company since, um, well, for forever. Um, and then on a lark, really, uh, like May 2017, I reached out to my advisor at from Carnegie Mellon and asked him if he'd be interested in starting a company with me. Um, and he's like, I'm actually in the Bay area now. I moved out with my wife and kids a little while ago and yeah, I'm starting a company. So why don't you come out here and, and join me? Um, and I was gearing up to have that conversation with my wife. Cause that seemed like a, one of the hardest parts of starting a company is actually finding the right co-founder. And I'm like, we, I just, this is perfect. Um, already have the conversation. And then I get another email from him saying, actually, I'm putting that on pause because Facebook just made me an offer that I can't refuse. Not like a gun to the head kind of thing, but mm. just a lot of money. I don't know about that. <laughs> and um, yeah, so he ended up doing that. I couldn't blame him, um, but I was all amped up to start this company. So I asked him if he could make any introductions um, for people who are technical enough to kind of help me get this thing off the ground. Um, and he did. And uh then the thing that kind of triggered everything uh, was I was at an event, uh, a real estate event, uh, like a networking event, uh, where Mark Holiday was the featured speaker. And, uh, you know, Mark Holiday from SL Green. And I, I didn't know much about the real estate space per se at that time, um, but I loved, I mean, One Vanderbilt is a really gorgeous project that they're building right now in Midtown. Um, and I figured, what the hell? Maybe I'm, I'll just go over to this guy um, and ask him what he thinks about this this concept that I have, because that's all it was at the time. Is the concept that of your became was that what you were planning to build with your advisor? Yeah, essentially, it was pretty similar. Earlier iteration. Of yeah, that. exactly. An earlier iteration. Things have evolved, but it was very similar. Um, so I grab Mark and essentially give him like an elevator pitch, um, just not in an elevator. And um, he's like, "Yeah, that sounds great." Uh, why don't I set you up with a meeting with my uh, construction management team? Um, and we set a meeting. It was three for three weeks at, from that day. Um, I used two weeks of my paternity leave. I had recently had my, my first child. Um, and I used two weeks of my paternity leave to take off from work and just prep for that meeting. Uh, did a ton of research, put together a deck, had a great meeting with them. And then they were like, yeah, we'll, we'll do a pilot with you. Um, and once I told my wife that she's like okay fine you can quit your job so <laughs> that's how that came about nice coming up we'll get a little bit deeper into you know how that journey you know kicked off you know from that first pilot program and a little bit deeper on you know the technology uh but first as is a custom on this show is uh snack time yes <laughs> and uh, a bit of a surprise today um uh i don't i don't i don't see any snack time over here i hang my head in shame I mean, you did say that you have a good excuse. Yes. So it is It is Passover or Pesach uh, for the Jews out there. And um, the only snack that I, I would have really been able to bring was uh, was matzah. And we, we ran out uh, this morning. That, as a fellow member of the tribe, I can appreciate that at this stage in the Passover experience, running out of matzah is perhaps a joyous experience. <laughs> it would be, except we have almost no other food in the house. Mm. So... Um, yeah. Also, not cool having like a. a I have a fourteen-month-old now, and we legit are 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 have nothing, so it's it's problematic. Uh. <laughs> have you enjoyed all the the standard Passover trappings? Um, we did the brisket, so uh, we did the mashed potatoes. I don't know what are your standard 
Passover trappings. I don't know. It's all pretty terrible. No one in my family is a really great cook. Oh, you got to uh, come over. We do a great Pesach brownie, actually. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So brownies, is that involving matzo? No. Uh, potato starch. And honestly, so there are two things we have on uh, at our house on Passover that I think are better than the standard uh, run of the, the mill fare. So our, our Passover brownies are legit better than our year-round brownies. I don't know. I love why. that you have something that you call year-round brownies. Yeah, no, yeah, year-round brownies and pay, and so Pesach this brownies. Is my summer brownie. <laughs> I, I didn't even I didn't even know Passover brownies was like a thing. Well, you can't use flour. Yeah, and accordingly, uh, potato starch steps in. But the thing about it is, like, I don't know. I don't know exactly why, but these brownies are, you know, most brownies. It's like I don't know, three parts flour to one part sugar, and then one part cook. I don't know, something like that. This is like eight parts sugar to one part potato starch. So that's really all you need to be a it's, perfect year-round brownie. Yeah, it's just, it's fantastic. And then the second thing is uh, matzo lasagna. All right, you got me there. Is, I believe, better. Now, people will disagree, but I think better than regular lasagna. Is it essentially lasagna with this matzo? It's essentially lasagna, but there's no al dente quality to it whatsoever. It's just kind of, it turns into mush. And I love that. I don't know. As a pasta lover, I'd probably have to... Uh... Have to object. But that's a bit of a bore <laughs> right, Sauce we'll, and cheese mush with like some kind of bite. It's, it's fantastic. We'll have to make up for this with a future Passover snack time. Agreed. Yeah, I'll we'll, bring in, well, either you get to choose the brownies or, or the lasagna. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, next, I think I think next year we'll, we'll have to have a, a, an update on the company and we can try these brownies. Fantastic. Um, but uh, we'll be right back. Are you looking to buy a home in New York City? Get more with Preview's industry-leading smart buyer rebate. Seamlessly search listings on Preview's end-to-end buyer platform, purchase your home with the expert advice of a local agent, plus receive up to 2% cash back thanks to Preview's smart buyer commission rebate. Smart buyers get more with Preview. Go to previewapp.com backslash buyer that's previewapp.com backslash buyer Rafi you were talking earlier about you know Avere everything you're working on you know the how it came to be you yeah. know with your uh, your bargaining with your wife <laughs> and you know I'm, I'm sitting here thinking like it's Obviously, there's one application, you know, construction management, you're going to sell people costs, you know, that all sounds great. Everybody starts off with that. But where do you see things going bigger picture, longer term? Yeah. So ultimately, where we see this having a major effect, and and the reason I got into uh, this business, the thing that kind of inspired me is the idea of that BIM becoming that digital twin and ultimately serving as a centerpiece for managing your facility in the long term, right? So right now, if you look at current facility management tools, they're kind of, uh, they're essentially Excel spreadsheets. Um, there's not much you can do with them. But the vision is to have an accurate building information model that you can actually use to manage your building that actually mirrors exactly um, what your building looks like, um, its current uh, status and situation. So, and ultimately, it becomes a centerpiece for what's happening um, in the Internet of Things with the smart building revolution, right, where you're... I mean, new buildings are installing sensors all over the place, but you need a place to visualize ultimately the data that's coming from those sensors. And potentially you need a system that enables those sensors to communicate with one another. Um, and that's what we hope BIM or eventually the Avere BIM becomes. 
And so I can understand the value of the data that you capture in the construction stage to make sure you avoid mistakes. That's yeah. what we were talking about before. But what about after the building is is all sealed up and ready to ready to go? What type of data are you capturing, and what does that apply to? What does a smart building provide for the owners or tenants of those buildings? Yeah, so I mean, it would be hard to say what data we would capture. It's certainly going to continue to be uh, geometry, and we haven't gotten to the place yet where we've decided whether we're going to be the service provider um, that will continue to update every element of the building, or if we're just going to have like an API around your BIM that um, other people's sensors can hook up into. Um, but if you look at the the marketplace for smart building sensors today, um, it really depends on what vertical you're in. That that kind of determines what types of sensors you'd be interested in. So if you're in an office space, obviously you start with your your thermostat, but it's a lot about providing um, comfort to uh, your to the workers who are who are working in the, in that office. So um, it might be uh, air quality control. Um, it might be uh, lighting and making sure there's you know the right amount of ambient light. Um, it might be you know just how many people are congregating in a particular room and can you get them to go elsewhere. I mean that's probably bigger in public transportation and things like that. Um, yeah. And is this data that is not captured now at all, or is it data that can be captured more efficiently so that you can? automate things or improve things in a way that is not done. So it depends. I mean, there are definitely sensors that are capturing some of that information already. Um, You have things like motion sensors or, um, uh, you know, and you certainly have uh, thermostats uh, all over buildings. Uh, So that information is being captured. I think the thing with um, the smart building revolution or the Internet of Things is really a great term because it's not about necessarily just having those sensors, but those sensors being smart and connected to each other through the Internet. Um, and enabling you to do interesting things with those data other than just capturing them and storing them somewhere in a database. And, and when you think of those Internet things, obviously in a, in a commercial building, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of different things you can measure from you know, power to water. You know. Right. I, even, I failed to mention like energy consumption, which is a huge one. But of the ones, obviously, you probably come across on different construction sites, you know, different plans. Uh, what are some of the more exciting technologies you've heard about or come across in, in your path? Um, there was – there's uh, – there's a company right now I know of that um, has safety sensors. They basically put a sensor on each human being um, and see if they can sense whether a person's fallen or if there is too large a congregation of people in, an, in a dangerous area. Um, there's a, another company I've heard of that is places sensors around a construction site to monitor air quality. So, you know, if there's some gas that's been released on site or if there are too many particulates in the air um, because of work that's going on, you know, Somebody will, the safety inspector will be alerted to that, uh, can bring down insurance costs and things of that nature. Um, yeah, I'm one of the more interesting things that I've been hearing about. There were actually things like uh, something you'd put on a, cons- a on a concrete column just to measure um, whether that concrete column is how it's shifting and um, if it's holding up to uh, you know you know different forces the way that it's supposed to be and bearing the load that it needs to. And so, you know, a lot of this information is really probably useful to, you know, the, the building manager, owner, making sure that the climate is controlled and that the building is safe, yeah. et cetera. How does this tie back to the earliest stages where, where Avir plays a role of construction? Is there a great, you know, amount of insight that you're capturing that is going to change the way buildings are built? Or is it just more of having an understanding throughout the whole process of from construction and on 
um, you know, what's happening at any given point in time. So I think we're definitely we're starting with the idea that, you know, we can catch mistakes very quickly after they happen. Um, and we can make sure that no matter what's built, you get an accurate picture of that. Um, and that ultimately, you know, our thesis is that um, you need an accurate model. Uh, you know, if you have a model, but it's not accurate, it's not of much value to you. So that an accurate model is going to be necessary in order to tie all those sensors together and make them useful. Um, but I think as we go forward and collect more and more data, we may actually get to a point where we can do, you know, predictive analytics on what are the types of mistakes that are most commonly made on these types of buildings. And we can actually start making suggestions about how to go about doing certain things or, or things that should be avoided um, on construction sites in order to prevent mistakes from happening in the first place. So that is definitely on our radar. And you've been involved in New York thus far. Are there any other markets you're you know, focused on or planning to roll out into? Everywhere. Um, you know, ultimately, we see ourselves as um, a SaaS, you know, software as a service, uh, analytics and visualization product. And so uh, we provide a service in the local area and we partner with other service providers to do the scanning. Uh, but there's no reason you can't do your own scanning uh, anywhere in the world and send us your data. Um, we are primarily starting in the United States, um, for, I mean, there are regulatory reasons, you know, once you go overseas, um, that make it a little bit difficult to expand, but we hope to be there, uh, in the next few years. And, uh, actually right now we have projects in Florida, in, uh, Texas, and hopefully in California shortly. Awesome. I mean, it's a, I mean, fairly starting in 17, that's a, yeah, it's a pretty great start. Yeah. So, I mean, thank God things are going well. Are there others that are doing similar things? I've heard of different types of scanners. You talk about LiDAR, laser scanners is another. Is this a, a kind of a, a field that you guys are pioneering, or is it a field that is kind of growing and creates a whole new market for BIM in a way that didn't previously exist? So that's a really good question. Um, I th when I first started out, um, you know, I think in a sense we are pioneering in that there are only a couple of companies uh, that are doing this, but we're not the only ones. Um, there are a few companies that have uh, similar visions, uh, not to credit my competitors too much, but uh, there are competitors out there like uh, Doxel, uh, which recently had a big launch uh, funding from Andreessen Horowitz, a company uh, based in Chicago called Reconstruct, and then there's an Israeli company called Cytoware. Um, and honestly, yes, they are potential or direct competitors of, of ours, but like you mentioned, I think... We're all contributing to an ecosystem um, that will hopefully fuel um, the further adoption of BIM and make BIM more useful, which is just, you know, the way I look at it is um, a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, and so them being there is actually, I think, helpful. Well, I mean, so do you see this as a, it sounds like you see it less as a competitive marketplace and more as uh, an education of the construction industry on how the kinds of services you guys are offering could improve exactly. the process. To, to me, it's going to be helpful that, um, if I approach a customer, they at least have heard of this concept before, um, whether it's they read about a competitor of ours and are now familiar with that. If I don't have to do a whole education uh, as part of our sales process, that's going to be incredible, incredibly helpful. And and how would you describe, uh, you know, if you were you know, put on the spot in a VC meeting, uh, how would you describe how you're different than those other competitors? I have been put on a spot, on the spot in, in VC meetings before. Um it differs with each uh, company, um, but one of the ways in which we are different um, from a company, let's say like Doxel, for example, which I think is probably our, our most direct competitors, they're focused on a tech-enabled service. 
um, they do the they mandate that they do the scanning for you, um, and they're also working on their own robotics um, to do that scanning and automate that process. Uh, we've decided we want to be hardware agnostic, um, so it's kind of like the uh, as an analogy like. Microsoft versus Apple from the 90s, you know, whether you want to have your closed system or open it up. And we've decided we don't know which hardware is going to win out or where LiDAR is going to be even in a year from now. So to make uh, a focused bet on a one particular robotic solution isn't the way we want it to go. Great. Um, when we come back, we'll uh, dig a little deeper on the person uh, of who you are and where you've come from. That's going to get exciting. <laughs> So we'll be right back. All right. The superior audio quality on Mouth Media Network is powered by Sennheiser. And as a listener, you can receive a 25% discount on virtually any headphone, microphone, and other high-quality audio product available to purchase directly on the Sennheiser website. Just visit Sennheiser.com and enter the code MouthMediaSen, that's MouthMedia, S-E-N-N, at checkout. Keep up with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Real Estate Biz Show and with hashtag MouthMedia. Plus, check out all of the MouthMedia Network shows at MouthMediaNetwork.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Rafi, before we get into the personal questions here, you know, I was thinking about you know a couple of additional things we didn't get to in in our last uh, you know segment. What are some of the other applications beyond just pure construction with what you're working on? Yeah, so with what we're working on, um, honestly, it goes to um, you know the change detection piece beyond just pure construction. It's really any asset you build. I mean, we can even do. Uh, potential applications in shipbuilding, for example, um, where you're, you know, if two pieces of steel need to be lined up, um, we can measure that those have been done exactly. Um, that's kind of a, a far out thing that we've been thinking about. But in terms of, um, you know, the smart building concept uh, as a whole, um, you know, what, some of the things we were talking about before were things along the lines of like safety um, and uh, comfort. But we've also had people request, um, and there are companies that are starting to do this around asset management, both in construction and in like the facility management stage of buildings. Um, so there are companies that'll you know put RFID tags on every piece of pipe that comes into a construction site, and they want to make sure that those are installed. I mean, we had a company approach us saying there was just a, a ton of uh, pipe that went missing on a last project, um, or just never got installed, and we don't know what happened to it. We want to have an inventory not only of what's come in, but what's been installed. So there are those companies that are making sure the right thing comes off the truck, uh, the right amount is coming off the truck, and then hopefully you know we're stepping in to make sure that the right amount is actually being translated into installed pipe. And, and do you think there's a feedback loop between you know things that you're using like lidar uh, that are coming from other industries like self-driving cars? And what you're doing, is that going to then improve the way that LiDAR, what you're applying in buildings, is going to affect the way that LiDAR sees people on the streets in, in self-driving car applications? I hope so. And I think so. I think the, you know, LiDAR is this tool that's um, being used across, you know, many industries now. Anytime you need to sense your surroundings, it's a really good tool. Um, and I think the way that 
we're going to take advantage of uh, advances um, from the you know self-driving car industry, and I think they'll take uh, advances from us. I mean, there was actually a, I forget where I was reading this, but there was a project about creating maps of roadways, and so there, I mean, there's a ton of overlap between what we're doing and creating those maps that have to be updated on a regular basis in order to remain relevant. And that's what Google has been doing with Google Maps for. Everybody. Yeah, exactly. So there's definitely a bunch of overlap and there's actually, you know, there are construction conferences and self-driving car conferences, but there are LIDAR conferences too, where we'll all get together. Sweet. Yeah, no, that's, uh, it's, thanks for indulging us with a, with a couple extra questions on, uh, my pleasure on the company. I was happy to avoid the couch, you know, <laughs> but, uh, no, uh, you know, I guess we'll, we'll make sure to get a, at least one or two, uh, personal questions. So, uh, you know, you still get your shot like every other guest, um, so I'll pass it to Scott for the, uh, the first personal question. So I did a little bit of looking up and found that this is not the first company that you started. No, it's not. You have one called Peak. Yes. Tell us more. Peak, uh, is a pair of, um, reversible sunglasses. Um, so I started when I was at Penn, I took a, a class in product design and the semester long challenge was to design a product that would be interesting to our peers, um, so undergrad and graduate students. And it had to ultimately cost under 50 bucks. And I was bothered by the fact at that day when the challenge, we had to come up with what we were going to design. Uh, I was bothered by the fact that my sunglasses only had one design on them. They were like plain black Wayfarers and I wanted some really cool design on the other side. I'm like, why don't these things just flip around? So. Me and a couple of uh, classmates of mine um, designed this pair of glasses, and I let that sit on the shelf for a while. And then it was actually my father-in-law. My wife and her family just end up tying into a lot of stories around entrepreneurship for me. But my father-in-law suggested that I uh, go patent this. And so I did and um, poured a bunch of money into that company and came back. You know, at some point we had gone far enough and my wife was like, is this really what you want to do for the next however many years? Because that's that's how long it may take to to get that business off the ground. Um, and I it just wasn't I was I've always been, like I mentioned before, interested in urban planning and biotech. Um, and this didn't hit any of those Reversible boxes. sunglasses doesn't fit. It didn't. It was an interesting creative project, um, but I wasn't interested in the business part of it anymore. And so I actually found uh, a guy who's willing to take that business over. So that's currently being developed by uh, a friend of mine. And that's that's pretty interesting. You could also, you mean, license that out to you know Ray Ban if you really yeah no if, really if Ray Ban's listening, Luxottica I think is the company that owns Ray Ban. If if you're listening to this podcast, uh, definitely reach out. We get so. more of a Warby Parker kind of a crowd. Who knows? I take the, I take them either. I'll take them too. One last question for you uh, here. You had mentioned before we, we actually went live on mic that uh, you'd previously wanted to do uh, a podcast. Um, yes. What, uh, what was your uh, topic? Was it LIDAR or was it uh, something different? No, it was politics. Uh, I wanted to do and still have in my mind the ideas for a, a political podcast where it would just be like really relaxed. Well, I shouldn't say relaxed. It'd be free-flowing conversation on on, pol- on political uh, ideas and discussions where um, the premise was going to be that you'd have to agree to the following uh, two ideas that or three ideas, that life was good, 
liberty was good and that sometimes those values conflicted with each other. And that's what debate was really, what political debate was really about is how to figure out the messy things between that. Because, you know, I didn't want to, if you were a serial killer, I didn't really want to talk to you. Um, and if you were serial, you know, just incredibly depressed and enjoyed that, I didn't want to talk to you either. Other than that, I felt like normal people could have a good political conversation based on those pretty wide net you cast there. Right, yeah. I thought, serial killers. I figured I figured like at least ninety eight percent of the population. That sounds better. Something like that. Yeah, because I mean conversations nowadays, you know, it it definitely it's become more polarized where it's tough to have a debate without yeah, and to me, turning into an the, argument. It's not the polarization per se. It's the fact that you can't it's not fact based anymore. Like and I understand I'm a student a little bit of the human brain. I was a, a neuroengineering PhD student for a little bit. And one of the things you learn about is um, the way the human brain works, it, it wants to def defend itself. So if you have an opinion and you have a, a particular bias or way of seeing things, you build on that. Um, but at some point, you've got to take a step back or, and ask yourself, am I interested in getting to the truth of the matter? Um, or am I just interested in making myself feel better about positions I already hold? Um, and as seductive as it can be to just feel good, I, I didn't want that kind of conversation. So I realize there's a clear evolution that ties together all your interests and backgrounds. Really? And the company you're working now. Neuroengineering the peak sunglasses yeah. into personal LiDAR that you just walk <laughs> around on your own you're taking snapshots of every building and it's downloaded to your brain and you've got your own information model everywhere you go. How did you know that's exactly where I was going? I see I see things. Yeah, that was pretty good. Rafi, this has been a, a great conversation and we'd like to give you know every guest the opportunity to, you know, share a share a final thought. Um, sure, a final thought. Well, first of all, thank you guys for having me on. Uh it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um I'm really hoping that the uh, the initial vision wasn't mine. The initial vision for BIM, being this digital twin of, of a structure, actually comes to fruition. Um, and I'd like to see the construction industry uh, continue to adopt new technology as it, as it started to in the last couple of years. Um, and finally, if you're interested in being part of that process um, and working with Avir, uh, you feel free to reach out. We're happy to discuss pilot projects um and how we can possibly work together and uh and how can you know folks uh reach you and and the brand uh best way is probably to visit our website uh avir.io that's a-v-v-i-r.io and you can also reach me at rafi holzer at avir.io so excellent yeah, yeah this has been a fantastic conversation thanks for joining us mm -hmm. and uh Thank you, uh, everyone, uh, for listening. And for Scott. Bye, everyone. I'm Tom, and real estate is your business. You've been listening to Real Estate Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for this show or to become a sponsor, email us at realestatebizshow at mouthmedianetwork.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Real Estate Biz Show. That's Real Estate B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, realestateisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network and brought to you by Preview. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening. Oh, 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 oh. 
This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.